Matthew 12, and we'll start at verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Scott. I wouldn't imagine the name Samak Pantai will mean much to any of us sitting here this evening. It didn't mean much to me until about a year ago. He is a man from Thailand who was sentenced to five years in prison, and his crime was taking a knife and slashing a painted portrait of the king of Thailand. The story made its way into national media, but little detail is known about the incident, because in Thailand, even mentioning or discussing such things can be seen as shameful or an insult to the monarchy. He's not the only man to be on the receiving end of such treatment. There was another man in Thailand who posted messages and images on his social media accounts, insulting and mocking the king. He was sentenced to 30 years in prison 
And the only reason he didn't receive the full 60 that he should have received was because he pleaded guilty to the charges. And when such a strong sentence like that is handed out, you know what sort of reverence and respect the king demands. You know what sort of reverence and respect he is due. We're working through Matthew's gospel in our evening services at Chalmers, and we're seeing another king, a greater king, and his kingdom being strongly opposed. Jesus' kingdom is advancing in these chapters, and it's meeting some staunch resistance from what is an unlikely source in the religious leaders. Had we been around 2,000 years ago, we would have put money on these men being the ones that would have received Jesus, the true king, with open arms. They were the ones charged with keeping God's laws and teaching God's people to do likewise. But instead, and we saw this last week in verse 14, to our shock, they are the ones who have resolved to conspire against Jesus. And in response to this growing opposition, King Jesus has powerful and shocking words of judgment that will reveal the extent of the rejection coming from the religious leaders for everyone to see and hear, and will publicly warn them that they will not be forgiven because of what Jesus calls their blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's a heavy sentence, but it demonstrates what sort of respect the king demands. But do Jesus' words not raise questions for us sitting here this evening? What does Jesus mean by blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? What would cause the God of forgiveness to withhold his forgiveness for someone? As we read through the passage, perhaps we thought about the woman who wonderfully puts her faith in Jesus, aged 40, 45, but has spent many years prior to that mocking Jesus and has on multiple occasions used God as a curse word. Will she never be forgiven? What about the man who has battled Tourette's syndrome his whole life and will find himself unable to stop continuously using God, Jesus, as a swear word? Will he never be forgiven? What does blasphemy against the Spirit look like? What are the implications for us sitting here this evening? Well, as we plot our course towards an answer, let's retune our ears to Matthew's gospel. Let's remember that at the start of Matthew, Jesus arrives on the scene as the authoritative king of God's people. The start of Matthew reminds us that he is born into the line of the great King David. He is the authoritative son of David. And then let's remember that at the end of Matthew, Jesus authoritatively commissions his apostles to go and make disciples of all nations. He says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am with you to the very end of the age. And last week with Sam, we saw Jesus, the Savior King, explaining to the religious leaders that he has the authority to set what can and cannot happen on the Sabbath. Why? Because he was the one that created it, and he is the one that fulfills everything the Sabbath promises. And again, last week in verse 18 of chapter 12, we saw that God the Father has put his spirit 
onto Jesus. Jesus' work, the work of the Father, the work of the Spirit are in total harmony with one another. But what was certainly true last week and what is certainly true this week is that the Pharisees will not receive his words. They will not serve the true King Jesus because they have reinvented God, reinvented his laws in their own image. They have a love for their position and they have a grip on God's people by twisting God's law and using their own laws that they have created to tyrannize and to control. And when they see Jesus' miracles and hear Jesus' words, they reject the God that they pretend to serve and they conspire to destroy him. And so as the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees unfolds further before us this evening, we'll see two things happening here. They're on the sheet you received when you came in. We'll see the external rejection of the Pharisees' evil words. And we'll see the internal rejection of the Pharisees' evil hearts. First then, the external rejection of the Pharisees' evil words. Verse 22. Jesus is introduced to a demon-oppressed man who is blind and mute, and he heals him so that this man sees and speaks. Jesus' kingdom is one where every eye will see him and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Jesus' kingdom is one where Satan is powerless and defeated. So when we see Jesus healing this man, we see a real taste of the nature of his kingdom. We sample his rule and his reign in the miracle that he performs. He authoritatively restores sight and authoritatively restores speech and authoritatively stops the work of Satan and his demons. His miracles are never arbitrary. They reveal and teach something of his character and his kingdom. This then causes all the people, verse 23, to be amazed and to ask, can this be the son of David? And that is the correct question to ask of Jesus. Jesus has driven demons out before, at the end of Matthew chapter 9, and the response from the people then was to say, never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But notice the difference in response now. As people see more and more of his miracles, as they hear his teaching and learn more about Jesus' power, more about his kingdom, they are absolutely right to ask, can this be the son of David? But rather than allowing the question to filter its way through the crowds and to find its answer in Jesus as a resounding, yes, this is the son of David, and we would do well to listen to him, the Pharisees are only interested in shutting Jesus down. Verse 24. It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The Pharisees have launched Operation Matthew 12, 14. The Pharisees cannot deny that the miracle has happened. And so instead, they launch a direct attack on Jesus, seeking to discredit him, discredit his miracles, accuse him of being evil, and turn the crowds against him. 
Jesus is the divine. The Pharisees call him the demonic. Jesus is the son of David. The Pharisees call him the prince of demons. They haven't slightly misunderstood the situation. These are misleading, malicious, militant words from those charged with upholding and teaching the truth of God's kingdom. But Jesus will not have the work of the God of heaven be smirched like this. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? You can see Jesus' logic here, can't you? If a kingdom or a city or a house is in a state of civil war, then what help does it have of presenting any defense against opposition? Why would Beelzebul declare civil war? Why would the prince of demons cast out demons? Jesus is the end of Satan's kingdom, but not because he is the prince of demons. Instead, because he is the authoritative king. The words of the Pharisees are senseless and spiteful, but watch Jesus then start to turn them back onto the Pharisees. Verse 27. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Okay, Pharisees, if it's Satan that drives out Satan, then what's going on when your disciples do it? If your followers are also doing what Jesus is demonically doing, are your followers also demonic? But the truth is that Jesus is doing the same kingdom work as the sons of the Pharisees when he drives out the demons. But the Pharisees look at the work that their sons are doing and applaud. But when they look at Jesus' work, clearly the work of the true heavenly king that opposes demonic power, the Pharisees seethe and scorn. The sons of the Pharisees, therefore, will be the judges of the Pharisees. They stand as judgment to the selective understanding and twisted intentions of the Pharisees who will promote their own sons and will not accept Jesus as king. But they also stand as a declaration that Jesus' work really is by God's spirit. Verse 28, if it is by the spirit of God that Jesus casts out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon the Pharisees. It's not the work of evil demons. It's the work of the eternal deity. And you, religious leader, the spirit of God is active. The kingdom of God has come upon you. And this is how you have responded. You have looked at it all square in the face. And you have said, evil. Jesus isn't working for the prince of demons. Jesus fights against the prince of demons. Jesus isn't channeling the power of the prince of demons. Jesus has bound the prince of demons. Jesus has rendered demonic work utterly useless and crippled. Verse 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Jesus is plundering the prince of demons of his possessions. 
That's what happened in the miracle in verse 22. Another possession belonging to the demons was plundered into Jesus' kingdom by the work and the power of the authoritative King Jesus, the son of David. So you, Pharisee, with your words, you are opposing the work of the true kingdom with Jesus as its true king, by the Spirit of God, rescuing people from Satan. Understand this very carefully, Pharisee. You are, verse 30, not with Jesus, but against Jesus. You are not gathering with him. You are scattering. Jesus wants to gather his people to him. That is God's plan for his people, to gather his people together from all over the world under Jesus. The Pharisees' plan, by contrast, is to scatter people away from Jesus. But he is onto them. When they accuse Jesus of being Beelzebul, they are directly in opposition to the eternal rescue plan of the God of the universe, which is literally staring at them in the life and the work of Jesus Christ. So now we're starting to understand why Jesus' words in verse 31 and 32 land with such a heavy blow. I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. The work of the Spirit is to reveal the truth of who Jesus is as the eternal King of all nations with all of the authority that he has over the forces that oppose him and then to take that truth and rub it into the hearts and open the eyes of those listening to see Jesus clearly. The Pharisees are seeing this happen. They are seeing the work of the Spirit unfolding in front of them. But as the Spirit fights demonic power and opens eyes to see Jesus clearly, the Pharisees blaspheme the Spirit and his work by saying, no, it is the work of the devil. It is a deliberate, resolute rejection and denial of who Jesus is and the work he came to do. So if we have any doubts as to what blasphemy against the Spirit might look like in the life of an individual, all we have to do is take a good, long look at the Pharisees here. They saw Jesus' good works by the Spirit of God, revealing God's kingdom with Jesus as king, and they said, evil. So have we committed the same crime? Are we guilty of the same penalty? Chalmers, there are definitely times in my life and in the life of any Christian when we have rejected the work of the Holy Spirit. That's just true. There are definitely times in my life and in the life of any Christian when we have looked at the work of the Spirit in our lives, trying to reveal more and more to us of Jesus as we read his words, as we pray to him, as we live our lives as Christians, trying to fight sin and evil in our lives, and we have refused to listen. Our hearts are fickle. But if we follow Jesus, those times fill us with sorrow and drive us to the cross, full of repentance as God's people, 
full of thankfulness and joy that Christ died to take that sin and evil upon himself. Haven't we been hearing during our studies in Romans on a Sunday morning about the wonderful assurance that we can have as God's people? Christ has forgiven us. Even as we sin and rebel against God's work in our lives, we have assurance that thanks to God's work in revealing Jesus as our King, he has won victory for his people over sin and death. So we look at the work of God's Spirit in our lives. And at times with a smile, at times we flinch, but we say, this is good. The work of the Spirit in my life is good. What a contrast that is to the Pharisees. What happens when an individual or a group will have nothing to do with the work God is doing in revealing Jesus as our King? What happens when an individual or a group folds their arms, rejects the work of the Spirit, calls it evil? They will not be forgiven. They are destined to spend eternity outside of God's forgiveness and favor. And with hard hearts, having made it very clear throughout their lives as Pharisees that they want nothing to do with the work of God's Spirit in their lives, they get exactly what they have asked for. An eternity apart from God and all the good work of God through his Spirit. And so Jesus issues a stark warning to those that would dig their trenches in opposition to the work of God's Spirit and call it evil. Do that your whole life. Never repent. Never seek God's forgiveness. Never seek a relationship with him. And what you face is no forgiveness. Chalmers Church, these are Jesus' words. Words that should warn those that oppose Jesus' work and still stand outside his forgiveness. The external rejection of the Pharisees' evil words. And what we see Jesus do next is to connect the words that the Pharisees speak with the state of their hearts. It's a feature of Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. He will listen to the words of the Pharisees and then turn them back on them to reveal something of the corrupt nature of their own hearts. That's what Jesus goes on to do in verses 33 to 37 the internal rejection of the Pharisees' evil hearts. I I know a young couple who recently bought a flat in Edinburgh. Two things you need to know here before I go on. The first is that the previous owner of the flat had at least one cat, maybe more. Said cat or cats were never encouraged or allowed to leave the flat. Total depravity. The second thing you need to know is that the wife of said couple moving in is really allergic to cats. And when they were moving their belongings into this new flat, sure enough, the wife started sneezing. And let's just say, noticed evidence that the previous owner of the flat had a cat. There were traces of cat hair and cat urine on the carpets, on the skirting boards. So up came the carpet, out came a few sockets. Cat urine was then found on the underlay, and so up came the underlay. It was then found on the plywood boards, and so up came the plywood boards. And as they kept on stripping back the layers, they exposed just how deep the rot sank. In these last few verses, 
listen to Jesus strip back the layers of the exterior of the Pharisees to expose the depth of where the rot sinks. Jesus says, verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. The Pharisees have a much deeper problem, and that is that they are bearing bad fruit as bad trees. They are not planted in the kingdom of Jesus. They are planted in opposition to him. And Jesus says that that is obvious by the bad fruit that they produce. Bad fruit seems like an understatement. The Pharisees initially tried to explain the work of Jesus as evil. And now the Pharisees listen as Jesus explains that their work is evil. You brood of vipers, verse 34. How can you speak good when you are evil? The answer, of course, is you can't. And that reveals the evil heart of the Pharisee. They masquerade their words, they masquerade their lives as good. But the reality is that they are poisonous, snake-like creatures. Much like the serpent himself, who seeks to undermine and oppose Jesus' kingdom. The Pharisee is, verse 35, the evil person out of his evil treasure, bringing forth evil. That is the true nature and depth of the opposition from the Pharisee here. Their hearts are so evil, so twisted, so sinful, so corrupt, that they would have it in their own hearts to look at the true Messiah and with ease say, he is evil and his work is evil. Jesus has totally reversed the accusation and the true good king with all the goodness and authority that he carries looks at the Pharisees and says, your words are evil because your hearts are evil. Such is the depth to which the rot has set. Or perhaps better, such is the origin of their rejection against God's king. Evil hearts. And he cannot, Jesus cannot and must not and will not have anyone accuse the work of God as being demonic. And so he will quickly and staunchly correct any misunderstanding of what is good and what is evil. Especially when it comes from those claiming to love and follow God. Those careless words that the Pharisees spoke, verses 36 and 37, they will have to give account for everything that they have said. On the day of judgment. And the words that were spoken by an individual about the king and his kingdom will either make him or her right before God or condemn him or her, him or her before God because, as we've seen, our words are an overflow of where our hearts are. And so our words reveal whether our hearts are full of good gospel treasure or evil treasure that opposes the work of God in the world. The state of our hearts before Jesus will be what determines our eternity. Penitent hearts saying, Jesus is king, will mean eternally justified, made right before God. Hard hearts of rejection saying, Jesus is evil, the work of the Spirit is evil, will mean eternity, unforgiven, bearing the full weight of God's judgment. Jesus will not allow anyone to be neutral or sit on the fence before him. Friends, does it happen today? Absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. 
Think of some of the words spoken by men and women across churches in this city, encouraging us to question the uniqueness of Christ as the only way to get to heaven. When we then say, but surely the work of the Spirit is to reveal Christ as the only way to the Father, they say, no, that's evil. Or think of some of the words spoken by men and women across the city encouraging us to question whether Jesus really did die on the cross to take God's wrath upon himself. When we say, but surely the work of the Spirit is to reveal Christ as our substitute to atone for our sins, they say, no, that's evil. Or think of some of the words spoken by men and women across the city encouraging us to question God's standards for his people and sexuality and holiness. When we then say, surely the work of the Spirit is to reveal Christ's teaching as good, good news, and authoritative for us today, they say, no, that is evil. Their blasphemous words reveal blasphemous hearts set against the Spirit's work of taking the truth of who Jesus is, what he came to do, rubbing it into our hearts, and opening our eyes to see Jesus clearly. They will twist and they will distort. They will call it evil. But we must ask ourselves as a church family, is it happening here? Any one of us sitting here, just like the Pharisee, can make all the right noises as someone who claims to follow God. But realistically, we continue to oppose the work of the Spirit by refusing to acknowledge Jesus as King. Perhaps we're sitting here this evening having heard the gospel for months or years now and the Spirit reveals Christ as the true King every single week. But we refuse to swear allegiance to him. Our hearts are still bad trees bearing bad fruit. And that is what makes Jesus' gospel such good news for us sitting here this evening. Anyone who is a Christian can say that before we came to know and love and follow Christ, we were all blasphemers against the Holy Spirit. And that is why Jesus has come to the victorious King to claim our allegiance and to give us new hearts and to move us from outside of his forgiveness to security inside his forgiveness. If you're sitting here tonight as someone still in opposition to Jesus, please let his words this evening be a warning that you still sit outside of his forgiveness. He offers a new heart that loves and follows him. If you're sitting here tonight as a follower of Jesus, then be encouraged that he came to plunder you from Satan's grasp, release you from that poisonous heart, and give you a new gospel heart that loves and follows him. Can this be the son of David? The answer is yes. This is the son of David. Let's go into the week ahead knowing the authoritative king we follow, battling sin and Satan, plundering him of his possessions. The work of God's spirit in our lives and in the lives of others is good, isn't it? Let me pray for us as we close.
Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gift that he is to us. We thank you, Father, that when we see Christ, we see your rescue plan for the nations. We thank you that Jesus perfectly reveals who you are, your goodness, your mercy, your forgiveness, but also your justice and your righteousness and your holiness. Father, Christ is exactly the king that we need. We pray and ask, Father, for those of us sitting here tonight that don't yet know you, that don't yet know this forgiveness, that still sit in opposition to you. Father, would you forgive them? Would you call them into your kingdom? Would you give them a gospel heart that knows you and loves you? And Father, reassure us all of your ongoing work in our lives by your Spirit to open our eyes to see Christ more and more clearly, to bear good fruit in accordance with who he is, to spread this glorious gospel as far and as wide as we can. That is our prayer, Father. None of this we can do by our own strength. And so we pray that your spirit would be at work in each and every single one of us to do good work and to point each and every single one of us to Christ and what he has done for us. And it's in his name that we pray, and it's in his name that we thank you. Amen.